Gentlemen, thanks for tuning in to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very exciting episode of the show for you folks today. Joining us on the other side of the mic is the founder and CEO of Hashnote, Leo Mizuhara. Sir, thanks so much for taking uh, the time to join the program. There's a lot to discuss. Uh, I'm probably, am I taking you away from, from some of the charts that are doing a lot better than they were a few months ago. We're, we're out of the summer doldrums. We're fully in a, a, we're entering regular winter, but probably not a, but not a crypto winter, it seems. It's a, it's a crypto summer in winter. And you guys are sort of, uh, have an interesting vantage point. Um, and, and, and as far as uh, we're hearing, we're hearing the RWA term crop up a lot. And we're hearing a lot of traditional Wall Street getting into crypto and so we're going to dive into a lot of those topics. But before we start, maybe you can just walk us through your background and tell us the origin story of Hashnote. Absolutely. Thanks for having me here, Frank. Um, so yeah, I uh, my background is primarily in traditional finance, actually. So I spent 12 years at Bank of America, uh, spent the last big chunk of it at their corporate investments group as a managing director and senior portfolio manager for the uh, for the balance sheet at large at Bank of America. Uh, so I have a background in portfolio management and particularly in that CIO group. Uh, after that, I went to DRW. Uh, mm-hmm. DRW within the crypto space is often known as Cumberland. Mm-hmm. And I ran the systematic options trading there, uh, including helping spin up the uh, Cumberland Options Group there at DRW. Um, you know, I'd been involved in crypto since 2013-ish. I think I did my first Bitcoin stuff in 2013. I wrote my first smart contracts in 2015, so been involved in this space for a long time. Um, didn't well, wasn't really a strong believer back in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, writing smart contracts back then was incredibly painful, and uh, it's gotten a lot better, right? And I it was shown to me through the uh, 2017, 2019 cycles when um, that this stuff could really become something larger than just a currency. And um, I think seeing how DeFi has flourished and really seeing how um, how some of this stuff can really become greater than the sum of its parts, I think is really inspiring to me and uh, part of the reasons why we started Hashnote. I think uh, DeFi on its own has a lot of merits. Um, there's a lot of benefit to having a decentralized system. There's a lot of benefit to being able to see things on chain and for people to have real ownership of their assets. But at the same time, um, there's a reason why we built institutions, right? Mm. There's a reason why uh, the world has evolved in a way where we now keep the majority of our our uh, capital at firms, at places that will custody our products for us. And so that that evolution back and forth, I think, will come to a natural resting point. And uh, we at Hashnote are trying to help build toward that resting point, which I think it's a combination of different types of custody. It's, uh, you know, people are calling these things real world assets, as you mentioned. Um, I think I think there's a lot of assets that are already digital that we can do a lot with. There are digital assets that are being now securitized. There are digital assets that are, um, that you know, Bitcoin ETF is a great example of this, right? That's a digital asset that's now being uh, brought back into the uh, TradFi space. And um, there's 
clearly a lot of things that can go the other direction. So there's a lot of that, um, there's a lot of that space that we're still trying to build up and is still the future of finance. I think finance will be a, a mix of these and eventually we're going to be calling it finance, right? It's not DeFi, it's not TradFi, it's finance with a, a good blend of, uh, of blockchain technology mixed into it. Well said. And it's funny, the last conversation we had today was with a venture capitalist who, <clears throat> coming from a different vantage point, said something similar, which was at one point, a lot of these crypto funds are just are, are, are going to just be funds to a certain extent, just like how you don't refer to certain venture firms as internet funds, right? Everything um, in some capacity touches the internet. And to your point, it's it's going to be a blend, whether you're a, a fintech company or a bank. When you look at what is underpinning the actual firm, there's going to be a blend of probably centralized and decentralized systems <clears throat> in the background. So when it comes to structured products, uh, which is sort of the, the the bread and butter services that the firm offers, uh, I, I'm feeling... Uh, not nostalgic per se, but uh, there's been a lot of um, personally thinking back to the different cycles of crypto as we kind of uh, see this this winter dethaw, try to compare and contrast, find parallels. And I think about the, the different iterations of structured products that I've seen going back to 2017 um, or maybe a little bit later, maybe it was 2019, but you saw the options industry sort of begin to flourish within crypto. And there were a lot of people who were probably too early with things like variant swaps. Uh, I remember, uh, I think it was it was Block Tower that did something with a variant swap with GSR. And I think it was the only trade. And then you go to DeFi, uh, the DeFi boom of, uh, let's call it 2020. Was that when DeFi summer was? Was it 2020 or 2021? But then you had a lot of DeFi structured products, you know, DeFi companies coming on online with a DeFi version of a credit default swap and all these different pro- products that, you know, you don't really see today. When we think about DeFi, when we think about rather structured products in crypto, how much of the opportunity is just serving the crypto industry with sort of... Uh, products that are tied to these coins and to what extent will there be an opportunity to actually take these products that exist in finance and these structured products and then turning them into uh, like a DeFi version, tokenizing them per se. And where do you sit in those two fields? You know, we at Hashnote, we do offer some things that look a lot like structured products, although I wouldn't necessarily say that's our bread and butter. Uh, we like to we like to call ourselves an on-chain asset management platform. Uh-huh. Uh, but to your point, I think there there are a lot of things to be done in the structured product space. Um, from our perspective, it's always about what what is the customer looking for? Why are the re- what are the reasons for which we're putting these products together? And one of the common reasons is that people are looking for yield on their crypto assets. And so you can consider some of that to be people who are crypto native, perhaps. And so they, they own some sort of crypto asset, want to earn yield on it. That's quite common. Uh, there are also people who perhaps have interest in the product and would rather get access to the product through a, um, through a fund-like structure. 
So they'll gain access to something access to something like Bitcoin uh, or Bitcoin with yield on it or ETH or staked ETH with excess yield all through us. And um, it's one way of getting, gaining access to the space without having to necessarily do all the crypto things or the DeFi things yourself. Uh, so we're seeing demand from both sides, both that crypto native side as well as the not crypto native side, just depending on what the exposure they're looking for is. Um, I was talking to some people this morning. So, you know, the Bitcoin maxis often talk about how important self-custody is, right? And uh, I think it's quite important as well. Uh, I've got a ledger in front of me here, and it's one of many that I have. And so, but I think that self-custody is quite scary. Mm. Uh, there's a reason why we moved away, uh, as we were talking about the evolution of the financial markets earlier. There's a reason we moved away from self-custody because it is quite dangerous for a lot of people, right? You can get things stolen from you. You can, uh, you can get things damaged in something like a house fire. And so we moved toward keeping some of our assets not at home. Um, gold is a great example of an asset like this, where some people keep Krugerrands under their bed, mm -hmm. other people buy the ETF, and yet other people keep uh, gold in a vault. So um, it's all a matter of like what that consumer is looking for. And um, in the crypto side, I think it's the same. The reason the ETF is so popular is because people do want Bitcoin exposure, I think. And as the asset class matures and as wealth managers start to say that uh, Bitcoin should be a core part of your portfolio in the same way that gold is. I think a lot of people are going to try to get that exposure through uh, through an ETF or some other fund-like structure. So, um, yeah, I think that structured product space is mostly about what is the profile of our customer and what is it they're looking for. And uh, if it's you know more than just straight up Bitcoin, there's a lot of stuff that we can do for our customers there. How interested our clients in the long tail uh, as of as of late we we have noticed um, if you're watching the market recently eth and bitcoin relatively stuck in the doldrums compared to the likes of solana and link and and others that have popped off are, are is that is that in, interest institutionally driven do you see larger firms tapping into a from like cash note to to access those those assets? Honestly, when we first started Hashnote, I thought that would be a big part of our business, helping clients get into that longer tail of assets. Uh, however, I have not found that to be the case. I think the level of penetration that we have for even just Bitcoin and Ethereum is surprisingly small. It's astoundingly small. Um, so getting people comfortable there is going to be the number one thing. Um, from what I've seen, most of the price action that's going on in things like Solana and, and Link have very much been crypto natives uh, reallocating back into those tokens. I think it's uh, a lot of fast money, as we say in TradFi. Interesting. And so how 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 strong is the fast money? I mean, nature of fast money is they're in it for the short term, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I'm a I'm a pretty I'm a reasonable believer of uh, Solana as a product. I think their technology is very interesting. Um, I'm not sure it's a in long-term investable asset from my perspective, just due to the, the cash flow components of it. Uh -huh. um, the fees are so low on Solana that it's difficult to think of it as, a, um, as an asset with, with supporting cash flows. Uh, perhaps you can add a monetary premium to that, and that's part of what they're going for. But um, from a fundamental, or as far as fundamentals go within crypto, it is, uh, it's difficult for me to to have that as a long-term thesis. 
And I think um, trading firms are similar. They they can see the momentum in the product. They see the hype around it. But um, it's not clear to me that people are necessarily putting this into a long-term hold portfolio the same way they are for Bitcoin. Is there a way to to tap into that energy? Um, or is this like more of a flash in the pan? Um, I don't know for, the, for some of those altcoins. I mean... I think Solana, for example, is definitely not a flash in the pan. I don't think Link is necessarily a flash in the pan, but I don't know if the if the price action over the last month or so or month and a half is necessarily sustainable. Um, I think other things that are quite popular right now. We were talking about RWAs a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, but you know RWAs are quite popular now, and I think those are definitely not a flash in the pan either. I think. Um, I have sorry. I have difficulty saying the word RWA because it always makes me think of risk-weighted assets from <laughs> the uh, bank days. But um, these tokenized, uh, tokenized real-world assets or tokenized securities, I think they have some real value. Um, I think there's a lot that's going to move a lot of traditional finance into blockchain space. Uh, ultimately, I I I like the idea of blockchain because ultimately that is just a settlement layer, right? It's a matter of having two trusted, untrusting counterparties who want to transact and being able to create a ledger of those transactions in a way that even untrusting counterparties can agree that this is the, the single source of truth. And that's ultimately all of finance. So I have a strong belief that we are going to be settling everything on-chain eventually. Uh, we might not be trading it on-chain. We might, There's a lot of variation on around which how much compute happens on-chain. But settlement, I think, clearly should be happening on chain. And uh, I think that would help us avoid a lot of issues that we've seen both in crypto, but also very much in traditional finance, right? The history of traditional finance is uh, is a history of, of various failures and, um, and financial misdoing, uh, well, f- financial uh, calamities. So, uh, you know, I think of this crater that FTX has left us in. And uh, I don't think it's that new, right? People blame crypto, but FTX is the same exact thing that happened with MF Global mm-hmm. back in, you know, we're dating ourselves, but back in the, uh, in the mid 2000s, uh, as 2012 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having a hedge fund that steals client money to do transactions, that's not new. And it's blown us up before. Uh, I think of things like Archegos from a couple of years ago, uh, essentially posting collateral twice at the same time, uh, posting the same collateral twice at two different counterparties, right? That's a TradFi problem. That can be solved with, with blockchain, right? I think the, uh, the, the customer assets being spent in other ways, being used at the hedge fund, that should be prevented via blockchain. You should be able to know where your assets are because you know where they are on chain. I think, um, you know, going even further back, uh, we had issues with Citadel during the pandemic. You know, were they able to find the borrow on the stocks they were shorting? That's a blockchain problem. Uh, Madoff, Madoff's probably a blockchain problem. You can you can uh, prevent Ponzi schemes because you can you can tell that the assets aren't just being resent back out back to other clients. Um, you know, a lot of the history of bad things happening in finance really could have been solved by this blockchain technology. We just haven't used it that way. Yeah. You're, you're kind of pinpointing a lot of examples in, in which you could, you could have avoided significant financial calamity 
if there was sort of blockchain infrastructure on in place. Most people, I think, would 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 find a lot of that self evident. But the question is, how do banks then roll out the infrastructure that leads to a world in which a lot of this stuff can be better tracked, more transparent? Um, how how do they move in that direction? And do you do you think that they're going to leverage public blockchains or private ones? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think part of it, though, is not the question of how can they do it. It's whether they're willing to and whether it'll be the banks necessarily taking it on for themselves or whether there'll be other institutions that come up and take that space. Uh, it partially depends on how much the consumer demands it. Uh, we've seen at various points in history that people really don't care about the details of their investment mm -hmm. until things are going wrong. So I think of the money market crisis when when the money market funds were breaking the buck way back in the day. Uh -huh. um, when that was happening, uh, we had basically nobody cared what was in their money market fund uh -huh. until we had that crisis. And then suddenly we people started to care, right? People started to say, "Hey, wait, do I have commercial paper? Do I have do I have U.S. Treasuries?" Maybe I need to reallocate all my uh, my commercial paper money market funds into treasury money market funds. And um, that was something that really nobody cared about until they were worried about breaking the buck. And I think that's going to happen a lot in um, in general finance as well. As we have more and more of these issues, like you know, Credit Suisse going down, for example, mm -hmm. maybe people will start to say, hey, like I'd like to both know that my assets are safe, like I trust these institutions, but I'd like to be able to verify that on chain. And that's part of the service that we offer. As an on-chain asset manager, we we manage assets, but we also show you where they are on-chain and you can track where your assets are on-chain at all times. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it comes to that money market story I just told, we also offer a money market fund. And the money market fund is interesting because of other reasons as well, like fast transactions, ability to post as collateral, but, but also um, the fact that it's on-chain means that you know it's there, People can trust that it's it's something that you can post as collateral. You haven't double posted it at multiple places. You can hold it at your custodian. Like there are there are a lot of use cases for this product. I think that haven't yet been fully tapped, and that's the world I think we need to build toward. As um, like, like you said, it's kind of self evident. It's fairly it's fairly clear that we need to end up in that situation. The question is, how do we build to that? So how do we build to that? What what steps do you think? What are the low-hanging fruits for a bank? Um, obviously, when we think about 2021, you had a lot of firms that thought that custody was sort of the first step, and there was a lot of trial and error there in custody. Um, JP Morgan has its its sort of JP Morgan coin. Um, what are the low-hanging low hanging fruits? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why we started as an asset manager, right? I think an asset management is a nice place where you can be fully regulated and you can still produce a lot of good value for the ecosystem. Uh, we are, you know, we're regulated by the CFTC within the U.S. and we're regulated by CEMA, the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority, mm -hmm. uh, in the Caymans for international clients. Um, I think being able to go through that regulatory scrutiny, uh, having auditors on all your products, and then being able to provide that, as I said earlier, trust but verify type infrastructure where you can get into the assets that you want and then you can see on chain that they are indeed there and they are yours. 
when you ask for something to happen to your assets, you see them move on chain immediately. It's no longer this world of like, you know, I trust Merrill Lynch to do uh, what I've asked them to do. And, you know, maybe it changes on my dashboard, but, you know, nobody can check whether that's actually what happened or not. Mm. If you're able to put this on a public blockchain, you can suddenly see it. And so I think that's a nice way to be able to say, hey, we'll do all the services that you do for um, that, that you do within the traditional banking system. But you can now verify those on chain. You can see what's happening there, as well as still getting all the services that you're normally used to and all the protections that you're used to. And I think banks will be kind of slow to get there, right? Like there are going to be companies like us who need to exist to start paving that path and making it something that uh, is clearly value add for the consumers. And then um, the the slower moving behemoths will come in after that. And the question is, um, is for them, is it going to be easier for them to do that within a private blockchain or a public blockchain? You know, we've gone the route of a uh, of a permissioned walled garden within a public blockchain, which I think is a nice yeah. middle ground where you have control over over your walled garden. You can still KYC AML within your space, but because it's on a pl- public blockchain, it is a it's verified by a large number of uh, distributed clients. So uh, it's not necessarily something that I can just go in and modify in the way that you might with a fully private blockchain. So yeah, I, uh, I think banks will have to make that choice and there'll be plenty of choices for them. Are there any additional, are there any risks um, that bringing some of these assets, like, are there any risks that become, that crop up when you bring some of these assets on chain? Uh, obviously the big red hot trend right now is bringing treasury bills on chain because the, because the sort of risk-free rate is, is so high relative to the history and even, even to, even to us crypto people, um, 5% is, is not that bad. So, but is it as simple as, okay, I'm going to tokenize this like that it's, we make it. People rather that offer these services make it sound so easy, um, but I think about a wide wide range of different um, real world assets. Putting stocks, tokenized stocks, and tokenized. Uh, there's one firm that we talked to that's doing tokenized uh, oil perpetual futures. I mean, where do you? How do you know that the pricing is reliable, or or the custody is is necessarily reliable? What what are the added risks um, in bringing a lot of these things on chain? Obviously, we're talking about a wide range of assets, but are there any general sort of uh, added risks that this brings? Absolutely, I think you're asking all the right questions there. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna start by talking about the tokenized T bills start section, and then we'll talk about other tokenized assets. You know, I think, like you said, there's a lot of people bringing tokenized uh, treasuries on chain. I think it's a giant misnomer. It's really dumb that people are calling them tokenized treasuries. Mm-hmm. Almost nobody's actually tokenizing treasuries. Mm. Right, people are tokenizing ETFs. People are tokenizing SPVs. People are tokenizing funds. Mm-hmm. I've I've literally seen nobody actually tokenizing the treasuries or the bills themselves. And there's a big difference. Um, and similar to what we said earlier about the money market funds and breaking the buck, nobody cares about the difference until the crisis happens and then everyone freaks out. Mm-hmm. But it behooves us to be careful from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally think that you want a a vehicle that gives you the closest access to the cash that you can. Mm-hmm. 
You want somebody who is believable and has run funds like this before, and it isn't going to get caught in a liquidity trap because this is our first rodeo, essentially. Um, you want somebody who's giving you access to that cash in the case of a bankruptcy. You know, there are some there are some structures that you can have that in the case of the, the company going under, you're not sure what your access to the underlying funds are. There are other structures that give you much more direct access. Uh, there are some firms where if rates go up, for example, you're going to lose a bunch of money, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're holding things with duration. Um, and there are other firms that are going to avoid that duration risk in order to give you the closest you can to that $1 is one token type of, uh, type, type of relationship. So we're, we're very much focused on understanding what all those nuances are, giving you, um, giving you legal structures that give you those protections, and making that, that tie-in from a token back to that money that you're trying to get, that yield you're trying to get, as close as possible. And I don't think that's necessarily the focus of much of the industry. Uh, much of the industry is more worried about moving quickly than they are about having that right structure in place to protect your money. Um, but, you know, that being said, the space has a lot of room to grow. Um, money markets are an enormous industry within the U.S. Um, and there, there are many ways to kind of, what do they say, skin the cat? Kind of a macabre image, but uh, there's, there's a lot of ways to do it. And I just say, try to be careful about how you get there. I think that's, um, that's something that is going to come to light eventually, always does. Uh, but it could be a while. For the non uh, non-treasury bill or non-yield related RWAs. Um, again, got to be careful. Um, I think eventually, um, as I mentioned earlier, all financial assets are going to settle on chain. Does that necessarily mean tokenizing them? I'm less certain about that. I think it makes a lot of sense for the blockchain itself to be the core point of reference, right? That's the actual ledger where things settle. If you're settling them somewhere else and then having to wrap them to be a token, it often makes less sense. And if it's a physical asset, gold, oil, real estate all come to mind. It's not obvious to me that it makes that much more sense either. We're pretty good at that stuff in the TradFi space. And once you've wrapped it in whatever traditional wrapper you're putting it in, throwing that on-chain after that, not obvious how much sense that makes either. Well, I guess like you could, it, it allows you to engage with DeFi so you can think of a world in which you have a tokenized representation of your whatever, I don't know, oil or cattle or apartment condo in, in Tribeca. And then you can plug that token in and, uh, you know, have it, have someone lend out a, a uh, lend to you against that collateral on Ave or something. Sure. And I think one day we will get there. Um, I imagine a future where all of your assets are on chain, right? Like my car equity is on chain. My home equity is on chain. Maybe even your personal, your human equity is on chain. And mm -hmm. so you can borrow against your future human equity. You could borrow against your car. You can do all these things, but it's, and that will be more efficient in the future, but it's not where we are now. Um, that's going to be a very hard thing to tie together in terms of where you get that, um, that connection between the physical asset and the tokenized asset, right? How do you prove that that's actually a one-to-one -one representation? 
Um, so I don't, it's, it's not obvious to me that that's like necessarily low hanging fruit, Mm -hmm. whereas there's plenty of other low hanging fruit within, within the space of tokenization. Um, I think right now when people say like, I'm going to tokenize real estate, for example, there's no actual like utility of that token quite yet. It's like tokenization for the sake of tokenization for the sake of fractionalization. Mm -hmm. Honestly, we're pretty good at fractionalization, even in TradFi, right? You can buy REITs, you can Mm -hmm. buy timeshares, you can buy all sorts of things that are partial real estate things. Um, But the question is, is is there another utility? Maybe for real estate, you could argue that there is some sort of speed of transaction. Um, I think that's true in the money markets, for example. I think mm-hmm. when you like, I don't know if the last time you tried to wire something overseas, but it yeah. takes days, yeah. and then money just kind of disappears, right? You it disappears from one account. My bank just doesn't let me doesn't like me wiring things. So every time I try, it it just cancels the transaction and and basically thinks it's fraud. Um, and then I have, yeah. I have to go in every single time. Well, basically every single time it's terrible. It's a terrible experience trying to wire money out. I've, I find it to be horrible. And like one of the most painful moments of my day, uh, is either waiting for wires or sending wires out. I'm pretty good at getting the wires. The wires get to me, but it's the sending, it's the sending of the wires. It reminds me of that Seinfeld bit where he goes, you're good at taking the reservations. <laughs> you're just not good at holding it remember that <laughs> yeah just, i mean anyone could just take a reservation and we, we see that a lot in the wire space right people people will say you can get a wire out but if you can't receive that wire within a couple of minutes or seconds it's it doesn't feel like an electronic trans uh, electronic transaction whereas with crypto it does mm-hmm. and with our usyc contract for example our our uh, money market token um, we can move that between parties almost instantaneously, you know, at the speed of Ethereum, if you will. Um, and it's it's a much easier process than the wire process. Um, we also can use that as collateral. We on platform can use that as as collateral against options, and our market makers take it as collateral uh, on our platform. We're working on other partnerships to be able to use this as collateral in other ways as well. And you can imagine how uh, collateral efficient, how capital efficient that becomes over time as well. Currently, if you're posting at one exchange, for example, and you want to move your collateral to a different exchange, that could take quite a while, especially if, to, if you have to send wires back and forth. That's going to become much faster with the crypto rails. And um, even within the crypto rails we have now, you can kind of do that with USDC. However, USDC is not yielding, right? So, Well, it is yielding. Yielding for them is exactly it's, it's yielding for a for a circle in Coinbase, right? It's a great deal for them, but our clients are looking for that yield for themselves, and they're looking to be capital efficient themselves rather than giving a donation to Coinbase and Circle. So, I think it's a natural evolution of markets, and they know that as well. They're they're aware that that's the direction the markets are going. Well, they've got. I think it'd be really innovative or, or interesting if they created. Um, I mean, basically a rival to your product. Um, for institutions like yield bearing USCC that is only available for like X profile of client. I think that would be, that would be pretty cool, but it raises the point, which is when we talk about RWAs or as we increasingly talk about them, um, I feel like it's, it's become more prevalent the past quarter or two quarters. Um, 
maybe I'm just late to the game. But the big RWA in this space are the stable coins. I mean, this is this is a this is a tokenization of of the dollar, and we don't think about I. Th- I would I would contend that we don't think about it in the same way as as these other assets. Um, we 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 almost think of it as, as a bit more trivial, right? Because uh, I don't know, dollars just seem so much less complicated than than any other asset. It's just it's just money, right? But really, I mean, one thing that I would love to do a whole episode on at some point, if if I could get um, one of these one of these firms to peel back the curtain, um, is on. The, the sort of, uh, I'm preaching to the choir to you, but maybe for the audience might be interesting. The infrastructure that goes into this, right? Like the portfolio management, the portfolio construction that goes into uh, the the reserves of, of these assets. I think a lot of people might think of it as, you know, Circle's bank account, just pile of dollars when you really have, I mean, I, I mean, you really have, I don't know the specific roles within Circle, but... I know uh, Paxis at least uh, they were advertising for a, a a CIO right for their for their reserves like this Absolutely. is this is quite the process um, so maybe we can un- unpack that like what a, a lot goes into uh, managing these reserves and it really is uh, quite the Herculean task from a liquidity and a counterparty risk perspective. That's absolutely right. I think um, you know it, it's it's the equivalent of. Uh, what a bank does. It's, there's a reason why Circle was looking for their bank charter at one point. Um, you know, as a bank and as a firm like Circle, and really it's very similar as the manager of a money market fund. You're worried about liquidity at all times. You're worried about uh, your counterparty risks and your your service provider risks at all times. You're trying to maximize the yield that you're getting. Um, you know, honestly, there's probably less pressure on Circle to maximize their yield than there is for like a money market fund, for example, mm-hmm. because you're actually trying to return as much as you can to your customers without risking that um, that liquidity crunch. Whereas uh, with a player like Circle, it's a, it's somewhat easier. You're trying to get good yield, but you know, if you're missing a little bit here and there, it's not a huge deal for them. Um, but yeah, I think that'd be a very interesting conversation. Um, you know, I'd be happy to have that conversation with you. I think, you know, I think Cumberland, uh, so, you know, having come from Cumberland, we're actually incubated by a company called Cumberland, Cumberland Labs, Mm -hmm. uh, run by the same partnership as Cumberland. Um, the, the Cumberland guys have a very strong thesis around the future of stable coins and how that is going to be, uh, one of the primary drivers for capital in movement or, and, uh, and that money market tokens like ours are going to be uh, the primary place for tokens at rest. So there's going to be this dichotomy between oh, right. tokens at rest, where you're actually trying to yield on them, you're trying to maximize your earnings, and then token and then tokens in movement, which are made for maximal capital efficiency, for moving from one place to another, for um, for spending and for uh, for transacting on exchanges. So. Yeah, I think that'd be a really fascinating conversation to have with uh, with a panel of people. Well, yeah, but and I guess one of the one of the main questions we can touch we can touch on it a, a little here um, because it is fascinating. To to what extent are stable coins just money market funds without the yield kickback? Yeah, I think the the management of them is going to be very similar. Um, so within the U.S. at least, and I, it's difficult for me to speak about other countries as they all have different rules around it, but 
uh, within the U.S., there's uh, the this 2A7 fund ruling where uh, there's a type of fund that can uh, both give you interest and, you know, essentially be a stable coin. They can tell you that for every dollar you have, there is a dollar behind it, even if there really isn't to some extent. Um, whereas, uh, whereas something that looks more like a checking account, right? Uh, your account at Circle is more like a checking account where the bank, or in this case, Circle, earns the yield on that float that you're giving them. Um, so, you know, there's, there are differences in how you account for them and um, the types of assets you can use to back them. Uh, I think if you're, if you're a firm like Circle, you have much more flexibility around what you can hold if you really wanted to go down the risk curve. Uh, whereas if you went down the money market fund route, you actually uh, have a lot more restrictions around what you can hold. Um, and to that extent, one could argue that you're actually safer in a money market type product where it's strongly regulated as to what you're allowed to hold. Um, you know, I don't think Circle is going to risk their stature in any way by going down that risk curve, but you know, Tether might. It's a little bit unclear. This goes back to the whole debate on on um, or controversy around the uh, Chinese paper um, or the the extent to which there's Chinese paper exposure. Um, we're actually going to have a really big report come out at some point on on sort of a lot of these topics um, with stablecoin, but it's it's fascinating. So okay, so we kind of laid a few pieces on the on the board here. Uh, when when you think about the future, five years out, ten years out, um, money market funds, savings accounts, stablecoins, in 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 a sense, do they is there a place where they all converge in a sense. Yeah. I mean, if we look at the traditional finance world, they all converge at banks, right? Banks kind of hold all your assets. Um, I would I would say your deposit accounts, your checking accounts, those are stable coins, right? When you have a checking account at uh, JP Morgan, you're holding the JP Morgan stable coin. And if you move that into a money market fund, whether it's run by uh, JP Morgan or, you know, it's probably being run by like a Fidelity or a BlackRock or something, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of these uh, money market funds you buy into even through your bank are often run by other institutions. Uh, but that portal you have is really, you know, either your your bank account or your brokerage account. It might be your Schwab account. Um, but you have this kind of capture within that platform. And you're shown the things that they've deemed to be safe investments for you or that they have partnerships with. And I think that's where we're going within the blockchain space as well. You know, I really think that as we move forward, we're going to be seeing uh, platforms like ours be the place where you come to to do your on-chain related things and that we're able to show you, hey, these are the guys that we've already uh, checked out. We know that these investments are safe. We know that you'll get the returns you're looking for those, uh, in those, and they're not scams. So we know the teams, and we know that they're doing this in a legitimate way, um, which is very hard for the individual, right? Mm -hmm. I, I find doing on-chain activities very onerous. Um, if I'm trying to manage my personal account on-chain, I spend a lot of time reading through smart contracts, making sure that I'm uh, connected to the, to the correct application, not some man-in-the-middle attack. And, um, you know, that transition from this difficulty, kind of like the, the old, like, 
internet before Google days, right? The, at the times when the internet was so very difficult to use back then, that's where we are now. And then we're going to move toward a simpler solution where people are people are used to using the internet. People will be used to using on-chain protocols, you know, probably through services like ours. Loading up Sol, uh, put faults at 10% APYs, like it's just riding a bicycle. Well, it's like riding a bicycle. It's like pushing, you know, it's just a push of a button, right? You you look at your, you look at the assets you have and you say, I want X percent yield. And you click on the amount of yield you want and we, we sort that out for you. But, you know, looking forward into the future even further, I think if we're just redefining, if we're just taking the current um, asset management space or current financial space and making the same thing, then this industry is not that exciting. Mm. But we know what are we really trying to do? I think as we as we figure out how this ownership structure works and how we can put more things on chain, uh, as we mentioned earlier, we talked about you know having your car, your 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 auto equity on chain, having your home equity on chain, having your human equity on chain. And once all these assets are on chain, there's no reason why it can't all be yielding at once, right? Why am I not uh, more productive with my assets at rest across the board, whether mm-hmm. it's your home equity, your car equity, your human equity. Uh, maybe it's uh, some partition of something I own that somebody else can use in some way. Like there's, there are so many assets at rest right now that um, I think will get unlocked by the blockchain space. And that's the future we're going toward, right? Everyone is going to be uh, better off because we're going to be able to unlock all these assets at rest that aren't able to yield, that aren't able to, to be productive in our current economic system. And I think that takes our current world of, you know, call it 120, 120 trillion of assets at rest within the world right now. I think that easily takes it another, call it 5x. So we're talking 600 trillion of assets that, you know, 80% of which are not getting accounted for right now because they're assets that are not being um, not being considered to be financial assets, which very much, very much could and should be as we evolve into a, into the next generation of financial futures. It's all about yield. I mean, so when you think about your future specifically, are you enabling that? Are you enabling these assets at rest to become blockchainificated, blockchainized. Yeah, I think of that as being productive, right? I think I'm we're trying to help all assets become productive assets. And it's we're not there yet. So we have to build this in a way where we're adding value now, we're adding value in 5 years and we're adding value in 10 years. However, this entire time I think we should be building toward that future of the the increased productivity of all of our assets at all times. And you know, it if we think about Amazon AWS or Uber, those have similar goals and similar reasons why they're so effective, right? Amazon AWS allows for a large cluster of servers to be always at use, mm. much more so than if everybody held their own clusters and used them, used their own clusters as opposed to did so on demand at AWS. Mm-hmm. Uber is the same with cars. Most people's cars lie idle. And um, in the idealized future, those assets are being productive and you know being lent out an Uber or some sort of like self-driving car app only to be returned to you just in time for you to do your commute. Financial assets are the same way. Most of them are sitting there at rest most of the time mm-hmm. and they aren't being fully utilized, um, sometimes because they're hard to do so. Uh, car equity comes to mind as something that's fairly hard to 
uh, to unlock and human equity even more so. Um, but in in this idealized future, all these things are much more productive and we're all better off for it, right? We can live better lives as our assets are more productive and as uh, we're able to put put our financial assets to work more and perhaps we as humans will be working somewhat less. That's good news for me. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite keen to do that. So, okay. So how about, how do you, how do you see this um, playing out in the short term um, in terms of the institutional crypto landscape? How are folks moving into the direction of uh, RWA, DeFi? Do you, do you see the banks moving in that direction anytime soon? I think the banks are likely to be the small, the slowest movers. However, we already see them experimenting in the space. I think we'll see a lot uh, with them experimenting on permission blockchains, on private blockchains. Uh, but you know, the the financial landscape at large is definitely moving this way. Mm-hmm. I think the Bitcoin ETF shows that to be a clear winner, and there are some research uh, research pieces showing that they'll likely double in market cap just due to the demand of uh, Bitcoin in many people's portfolios. So short the, the short-term play is almost certainly going to be about how do we onboard people who are not yet on-chain? How do we make these investments accessible and safe? Um, safety is the number one priority for us and I think should be for the, uh, for the ecosystem at large. Uh, we have to rebuild that trust within the ecosystem by building that safety. Uh, I think it's amazing that um, Coinbase, uh, their franchise, they're they're the trusted name in crypto, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if you stake with Coinbase, uh, your Ethereum, if you stake your Ethereum with Coinbase, they take twenty five percent of your income as their fee. Um, if you compare that to like a Lido, right? Lido takes ten percent. Mm-hmm. So the the trust premium, if you will, is a two and a half times Lido, um, and yet they're, I believe, the second biggest staker. Um, people are willing to pay large sums of money for that trust that Coinbase has built up, and I mean, more than anything, that's an indictment of our industry, right? That they can't trust so much of it that there's only one trusted counterparty that they're willing to pay 25% of their earnings. Think of taking like 25% of your salary and paying it away because you can only trust one bank to keep it for you. Um, that's an incredible trust premium to me. And so, you know, we at Hashnote are looking to build up some of that trust. Uh, we offer a staking product that does not charge 25%, for example, but also we think with you know, with our pedigrees as a group, uh, with our backing from Cumberland and DRW, um, we think that there's, um, you know, there, there's a lot of things that we can do to build trust within the space and build products that are really um, helping people earn earn more on their crypto and then eventually earning more on these, on kind of the most productive types of RWAs, right? The types of RWAs where uh, the, the blockchainification, if you will, uh, is actually adding value to the asset as opposed to just being, you know, securitized and tossed onto the chain. Um, and that's the low-hanging fruit. That's kind of the first year or two, in my opinion. Um, when you get five years out, we're starting to think more about what uh, what asset classes are being tokenized in a, in a truly native way, in a truly efficient way. 
Uh, in my mind, digital assets are a big part of that in general. So uh, when I think like digitally native, na- digitally native assets, uh, the ones that come to mind are music, perhaps video, perhaps um, you know, video game assets, uh, any sort of virtual world type things. Um, I think a lot of these things are going to go on chain and are very natural to get paid off that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we start to move, you know, honestly, equity is our digital asset. So that is a pretty, I think it's a pretty good fit. And it's just a matter of getting the regulation around it and finding the right place to do so. Uh, if I remember correctly, digital, digital Asset Group was working with the Australian exchange at one point to mm-hmm. do all their equities on chain. It seemed to be a good fit, uh, even if it didn't work out. Um, but I think that's inevitable. And then 10 years out, I expect everything to be settling on chain. And at that point, the question is, um, are you going to be, is, is, are the likes of BlackRock and Fidelity and such, um, are they going to be able to make that transition uh, smoothly and in time? Or uh, is it going to be a space where a more on-chain native firm can really make a, make a dent in those assets? We shall see. We shall see. Leo, thanks so much for joining the program. Thank you very much. It's great, great to be here, Frank. Great to have you. And where can folks find out more about what you're working on? Yeah. Uh, so you can find us find us on our website at hashnote.com. Uh, we have a Twitter handle. Uh, I believe it's Hashnote Labs. And uh, you can follow me directly at, at Leo Mizuhara. I think it's Leo underscore Mizuhara. Perfect. Thanks so much. <laughs>